The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Dr. Carrie Wilkins, PhD, is the co-founder and clinical director of the Center for Motivation and Change. She co-authored a number of books, including the award-winning Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change, and the recently published Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, Evidence-Based Skills to Help a Loved One Make Change. A review of the workbook appears in the section Books We Love in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Carrie Wilkins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we are excited to have you because addiction is one of my, I'm really interested in, in addiction. Your approach, from what I could tell, reading both the, the, the book Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change, and now the workbook, your approach is really interesting. It's, I don't know if unique is the right word, but it certainly is new to me in many in many ways coming from a more 12-step oriented background mm -hmm. so i i'm looking forward to the conversation yes so your new book beyond addiction workbook for family and friends it's a sequel to the previous book beyond addiction how science and kindness help people change and because it is let's let's just start with a grounding in the first book in that book, you and your co-authors present your own approach to helping people with substance abuse, an approach you call ITC, or Invitation to Change. Lay out the basic premise of ITC and how it differs from, you know, let's say, the, the Al-Anon or community reinforcement and family training, things like that. Sure. I mean, we could have a whole podcast just on the history of the different treatments that have led us to the invitation to change and to just the way our culture responds to and tries to address addiction problems. And so there's a whole historical <laughs> background of which I think a lot of it is painful and painful for the people who have received certain treatments, how they've been treated, how the, how we talk about people with substance use problems. There's a lot of stigmatized, painful language in terms of how we, as a culture, talk about people with these issues. And the invitation to change model is really bringing together four evidence-based, so that the, 
the evidence-based science part of this is these are the treatments and approaches that in research studies have proven to be very effective at helping people with substance issues. And in particular, the invitation to change is designed to help the family members and the people who love people with addiction problems, because that is a profoundly neglected group of people. Um, there, you know, for every person with a substance use problem, studies suggest that there's one to four people who are being deeply affected by that person's struggle, whether it's financially, emotionally, physically, they love that person. They want that person to be healthy and well. And the messaging they get tends to be distance yourself, let them hit rock bottom, use tough love. You know, there's all this very peculiar messaging (laughs) that family members get in terms of how they're supposed to be helping their loved one who's struggling, right? These evidence-based, science-based approaches are full of strategies and skills that can help them do that, do what they most desperately want to do, which is help their loved one. And there are skills and strategies that can help them be effective in that. And we've added a whole component of it, which is compassion, both for yourself as a helper and for the person that you're trying to help and their struggles and just seeing the humanness in that and being able to have compassion for that and compassion for the learning process. I mean, I don't know how you talk about it, but I talk about sobriety as a learned behavior. Nobody just decided to be sober, right? (laughs) They learn it, they practice it, and it's a lifelong journey. And I think when somebody's in crisis and really harming themselves with substances, we just want them to stop it. We want them to cut it out and we want it to happen fast. And that's just not how it works. So this model is really trying to help helpers approach the change process in a way that is sustainable for them and helpful for their loved one. So I've been in a number of groups, uh, both as a Oh, I really can't say participant. Well, I guess you say participant. Mm-hmm. I, I've had alcoholics in my family, my extended family, and I and I've been, you know, with a number of groups as a speaker. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I hear, and and these aren't, you know, groups that are using your your methodology, but one of the things that I hear a lot is, and you mentioned it, you know, people saying, "Well, the best way I can help is not to enable." And so the best way for me not to enable is to really just say, you know, I'll help you when you're talking about recovery. I'm not going to bail you out. I'm not going to get you out of jail. I'm not going to, you know, pay for endless numbers of, of programs, you know, rehabilitation programs. You have to prove to me that you're actually going to make a difference. You, you, you're going to be different. It's going to be different this time. Mm-hmm. What, what do you say to people like that who are just... It's destroying my life. I have to, self-compassion is going to mean separation because this other person, I love them and they're trapped. Right. So I actually just worked with a mother who got herself to that point. We've been working for a year to really use different strategies to try to help her son engage in the help that he needed. And he's not willing to do that yet. So she actually right before I got on this call, sent me the email that she sent her son, which was full of love and compassion and saying to him, I actually have to take a step back, you know, right now, because this is, I'm suffering so much watching you suffer. So it's not that people using this, the invitation to change don't eventually get there. The problem is that there are a lot of strategies that 
might prevent you from ever having to get to that place with your loved one. There's a lot of things that people can do earlier in the process, earlier when people are struggling. You know, the, the reality is you can help somebody at any stage of the change process, but there's a lot of things around addiction in particular that we don't do soon enough because people don't really have the skills. We don't can you know. Give us a, can you give us an example? Yeah. So I can, I can ask you questions about your substance use problem and I can give you feedback about the impact of your substances. I can do that one of two ways. I can do it in a way that makes you defensive and makes you want to take a big step back from me because I'm telling you you're an addict. I'm telling you how you're failing. I'm telling you all sorts of things, right? That you will instantly say, no, none of that's true. Just because I've made you defensive in the words I'm using, how I'm approaching you and how I'm talking about it. Or I can utilize a bunch of skills that help me create a platform where you and I can have a conversation and I'm curious about you and I'm interested in what's happening for you. And I want to understand you and have like a very compassionate, connected conversation with you where I'm getting information about your experience. That information is something that I can then potentially use to think about the environment we're in together, to think about how we're spending our time, to think about what I'm reinforcing. You know, when people say, I don't want to enable, they often end up feeling, I can't do anything. Everything becomes enabling. Right. If I if I help my loved one in any way, I'm enabling them. Well, that's probably not true. There may be some things that are supporting, you know, destructive behaviors that you want to stop doing. But there's all sorts of ways that you can stay connected and support your loved one that are reinforcing of positive changes and really helping loved ones differentiate those things. Just gives them more more opportunity to take action and more opportunity to stay connected. And that the the thing I've heard is, you know, parents in particular get this message of, sorry, there's nothing you could do except detach. That is impossible for a parent to do. It's literally impossible. (laughs) Like it's just so painful for them. And so they end up not doing anything or kind of pulling away from the supports that are telling them to do that versus like the invitation to change is all about like slowing down, really assessing yourself, becoming more aware of yourself so that you can slow down and differentiate. Am I doing too much here? Or am I neglecting something over here? You know, can I talk about things in a different way so that you can stay connected to your loved one and not support destructive behaviors? Those, those two things are not mutually exclusive. I want to go back to really how you started answering the question, because I think it was, it was brilliant. The, your, your use of the word curious. Mm-hmm. That you take an attitude, and this will be the same. I, I, my sense is it's the same for the person struggling with sobriety or you know the lack thereof. Being curious about your situation, whether whether you know I'm curious about my spouse's situation, my child's situation, my parent's situation, mm-hmm. but then I'm also curious about my own in the context of their addiction, or if I'm I don't know if I want to use these words, but if I'm the addict. If I'm the person with the the substance problem, can I just instead of because I know so many who just hate themselves, yes, you know, I, I, I I'm and that's part of the problem. I mean, they're so <laughs> negative about themselves and so negative about change, and they might as well just you know give in to whatever their abuse problem is. But if I can be curious yeah. about the madness in my life, that 
I mean, that you could almost hear the tumblers turn, you know, and <laughs> mm-hmm. unlocking a whole new dimension of, of possibility. I, I, I want to ask you about, well, I mean, you can come, you want to add anything to the notion of curious? Yes. I mean, the, the model has three components. It's called helping with understanding, helping with self-awareness and helping with action. Most people, most family members want to jump right into the helping with action. They just want to know what to do, right? <laughs> We're actually, well, we should actually spend a lot of time in the helping with understanding section and the helping with self-awareness section. And the first part of helping with understanding is something that we call behaviors make sense, which is really being able to s- accept and have a deep understanding for substances like and, and you know this, with food, gambling, sex, substances, you know, we as human beings reach out to all sorts of things to numb ourselves, to cut ourselves off, to change our feelings, right? So the, the substance is serving a purpose. It's doing something. And it's doing something that is deeply meaningful to the person doing it. If you just label that as you're just an addict and you need to stop using, get on with it everything you're doing is bad. You are missing that person completely. They're doing something that really works and they're doing that because they don't have other skills to achieve whatever it is they're looking for. (laughs) And, you know, which comes back to a spirituality practice or different ways that you take care of your body or different ways that you communicate. Those are all learned things. So to ask somebody to give something up, without giving them space, time, encouragement to learn replacement behaviors, you're just setting them up for failure and they're feeling profoundly misunderstood. So being able to approach that with curiosity and compassion of like, huh, what, why is my loved one, why are they doing that? What do they get out of it? What draws them to it? That's not condoning it. That's not saying, I think it's great that they do that. It's really being able to say, okay, they get X, Y, and Z out of it. Is there something else? that we can do that helps them fill that space in a different way, you know, and relate to their emotions in a different way, feel connected in a different way, whatever it is. So that's, it's a pretty key that that element of curiosity is really foundational to the invitation to change. Yeah. And I like the way you you tied it to, you know, behaviors make sense. I mean, that's one of the, I, I don't know, sort of like a circle of, of, um, dimensions to the to this to this work and i, and I, I want to talk about a couple of other ones too in a minute but i want to go back to something else you said that i thought was really important also nobody decides to be sober isn't that what you said well nobody's instantly sober you know you just you can't you just be like you can't be like i want to be sober right yeah. you actually right. have to work at it and you have to work at it very deeply. <laughs> now, what about the opposite? How did, I mean, do we decide to be addicted? No, that's also, that's also learned, you know, I mean, the first time somebody has a, a drink, you know, somebody who's say they're temperamentally anxious, they've had, they grew up in a chaotic household where they didn't learn how to regulate their emotions. The first time they have a drink and that the effect of alcohol causes their whole body to relax. And they're like, oh, that's the first time I felt that because I don't know how to do that in any other way. So that alcohol works, right? And so then every time they start to feel anxious, they realize alcohol works for that and alcohol works for that too. And alcohol works when I get in a fight because I don't know how to resolve that. It works for me when I go to work and I feel anxious. So then all of a sudden over time, they're learning that their anxiety goes away when they have a drink. 
yes, of course, that drink causes all sorts of other problems eventually, right? And it may make their anxiety worse. But that first learned experience of like, oh, I feel relief. That is profound and powerful. And it really does work. And it works quickly. They know exactly how it works in the moment. They may be suffering massively with all the consequences that come after it, but that first moment is what they're after. So we have to be able to help them relate to that anxiety and tend to that anxiety and accept and work with that anxiety instead of just trying to make that anxiety go away. Alcohol is just trying to make it go away. Versus, Behaviors make sense. Yeah. Versus right, this works. Figuring out how to live why, with it. Yeah. Why would I, would I want to give that up? This right. is... This is the medicine that, that works for me. Mm -hmm. So is this more than, the, is, is ITC, the, the method, you know, invitation to change, mm -hmm. is it more psychological? I mean, it, you know, there's this whole notion of, of addiction as a disease or that you're genetically predisposed to become an alcoholic or whatever it might be. Is, is your approach, how do, how do you deal with that disease model? So the problem, the problem for us is I think the, the disease model speaks to lots of people and there's a reason why it's so deeply embedded in our culture. And there's a fair amount of science about like, okay, at a certain point, your, your brain and your physiology has really been altered, right? And it, it's functioning in your body more as a disease. The, the reality is to only talk about substance use problems with that language and in that, through that lens is you are not including, and we're not talking about all of the other people who have problematic relationships with substances. They're, they haven't crossed that line yet, <laughs> but there's they have problems with it, and they may never, but they may never cross over into quote unquote disease and addiction. But they're struggling; their life is diminished because of it. You know, they're not living fully in touch because they're numbing themselves in some ways. They may do it may be doing it intermittently, but it's happening nonetheless. And so I think the ITC and, you know, for parents, you know, you know, your kid, when they're 14, 15, 16, like in experimenting with substances, they're not instantly an addict. They may not ever be, you know, but there's, there's strategies you could use to help someone make positive behavior changes. And so the ITC is really designed to like, again, just touch all points of the change process and all stages of severity from very low level to high level. You know, the one of the core components of the invitation to change is craft, which is a very well-known evidence-based treatment approach for families with sub, you know, who love somebody with a substance problem. And those studies were done on, you know, families whose loved one was homeless, you know, who had very, very serious addiction problems. And family members who use the craft model were successful in getting their loved one into treatment, you know, in the 60 to 70 percent zone compared to interventions, which was like about 15% and Al-Anon, which is about 3%. Al-Anon isn't designed to get your loved one into treatment. Al-Anon is a self-help community for people to get support. But the reality is a lot of family members really want their loved one to get into treatment. They really want them to get help, right? So there are in fact, a lot of strategies that can, can really improve your odds of doing that. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. 
Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. You know, the next problem is, well, what kind of treatment and what is going to help my loved one? That's a whole nother hornet's nest in terms of figuring that piece of it out. You know, and a lot of people never, never seek treatment. You know, they, they, they speak to their elders in their community, you know, they get into couples counseling, you know, there's all sorts of ways to get better. So that's another part of the model is one size doesn't fit all. We really, we're constantly saying that people with addictions have to go to meetings or they have to do this, or they have to do that. They have to go to rehab. I don't know if they have to or not. My job is to really deeply connect with you and try to help you understand what you need, what your family needs, what resources you have, what are your cultural, what's your cultural background? What are your beliefs? What are your strengths? And put that all together in a way that you as an individual can get better. And, you know, I mean, that's different for everybody. Right. We should be clear that when, when you quoted the, the Al-Anon statistic at 3%, you said, and we should highlight it, that's probably because Al-Anon is not about getting someone else into it's treatment. It's Al-Anon's about dealing a, with the yeah. impact of an addict in your life. Yeah, Alan is a wonderful community. We have so many, so many of the people who, you know, come to our trainings and learn the invitation to change. They're they're regular attenders of Alanon because they get so much community support and have their own shame and pain reduced by connecting with other people who mm-hmm. have the same lived experience. That's incredibly powerful. So it's not anti-Alanon. It's just when you look at what's effective in getting a loved one to seek treatment, uh, Al-Anon's not in there. Right. And it wasn't that's designed not, to be. That's, yeah. not what it, that's not what it tries to do. Exactly. It'd be like saying, you know, taking your dog for training doesn't get a loved one into treatment either. Right, that's, that's exactly. That's a great, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and there's another problem with, with statistics and 12-step in general is that the court system often mandates 12-step right. attendance. Right. And, and, and you go because it's that or jail, Right. But you really don't want to go and you don't want to work the steps. You just want to stay you know, out of prison. Yeah. So there's there's all kinds of, of challenges here. As I'm listening to you talk about this, it seems to me that we don't have to be talking about addiction. We don't even we don't have to be talking about people with with any outstanding abuse substance or whatever. It's going to be a, a, a problem. It, it, we all need coping mechanisms for the yeah. everyday madness of our ordinary lives. Mm-hmm. And so some of us can't, we, we cope with the madness through alcohol, through gambling, through overeating, whatever, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. But, and other people will do it in other ways, maybe not as overtly unhealthy, mm-hmm. but maybe not any more healthy. It's just, you know, unhealthy in a different way. Right. So it sounds like everyone could benefit from this. How would, how would that work? How you know? If I, how would people just recognize? You know, my life could be more. My life could be better, and I have to make some changes. Alcohol is not my issue. None of these things are my issue. Sure. I mean, people who seek treatment with us tend to be you know people who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm really struggling with something, and it may be I'm I'm working compulsively. I you know I'm my family's mad at me, and I'm completely neglecting my physical well-being and health because I feel like I have to work 900 hours a week. Like, you know, we definitely have people in that, but the invitation to change is really for the family member or for like, if you have a friend you're worried about, if you have, you know, if you're a first responder, if you're, you know, 
in the healthcare profession, it's a, it's a, it's a set of strategies that help you as a helper approach this problem in the most effective way that you can, you know, so that you can really have a positive impact on a person. You know, I noticed earlier when we were talking, you, you hesitated, you hesitated and say, maybe I don't want to use the word addict. You know, if one of the things I say to people, if you're a member of the 12 step community and you call yourself an alcoholic or an addict, because it joins you to a community that you feel connected to, that can be profoundly healing and very meaningful to people, right? If I'm somebody who is arguing with you and I tell you and I label you an addict, that's very different, right? I don't have the right to do that. So, and that's how we talk about it. And that's how loved ones, we just had a woman whose husband, you know, came to our rehab and she read the book and she's like, For, and he has horrible trauma, horrible PTSD. And, you know, she said like, for the first time, I've been so mad at him. I've been furious at him for years and yelling at him and all these things. And she's like, I understand now why he's doing it. I feel brokenhearted that I've been interacting with him in this way. So it just increased her compassion for the problem and her willingness to kind of step towards him as opposed but instead of further away from him. And I think of addiction problems as a, a problem with connection, right? Like it's trying to connect with yourself and connect with the world through a substance or through a behavior versus being able to do it authentically, mindfully, just rawly with another human and with yourself. Right. And so I, I just, I, there's a way that we talk about it in this culture that separates us from the people who are suffering instead of helping us step towards them while taking care of ourselves. Right? It's not about sacrificing yourself as a helper. It's not about rescuing. It's being present. It's being willing <laughs> to feel the pain that sometimes comes along with helping. Helping can be really painful. My job is really painful some, for sometimes, you know, like really painful. I get really scared about the people that I work with. I get really brokenhearted for them. And it's deeply meaningful, you know, to stay in it with them and help them through the process. I had years of graduate school and lots of support to do that. Family members don't have that. So we're trying to build a community where family members and friends can find the support that they need, you know, and the skills that they need to, to take care of themselves and to stay connected to their loved one through the change process. So I'm, I'm cognizant of the amount of time we have left. And I just let people know that there is so much more in the workbook and in the the original Beyond Addiction book that we can't even begin to cover here. So I just want to take the few minutes we have left and focus on something you hinted at it or you you used the word and then moved on. One of the things you talk about in the book is having a willingness or you say willingness is a new way to relate to pain. And I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. What What do you mean by willingness? Is it like surrender? I don't, it doesn't sound like it, but I'm just sort of throwing some things out there. But so, so tell us, what do you mean by willingness as a new way to relate to pain? What was the old way and why is this way better? Well, so, you know, just how I was using myself there, like saying my work is painful sometimes, right? So my value. So one of the parts of the helping with under helping with self-awareness section of the invitation to change is identifying your values. You know, so what do you as a person really care about? 
Like, and what do you care about in your relationship with your loved one? Like, what are your deeply held values? Because those are your North star, right? Those are the things that keep you engaged. Because when we feel pain, we want to get away from it. But the problem with moving away from our pain is that sometimes takes us away from the things that we value, right? So if I value connection with my loved one, but every time they disappoint me or every time they scare me, if I instantly distance myself or if I don't talk to them or if I detach, right, I may be in less pain, but I have no influence. I have no connection to my loved one. I have no way of helping them, right? So I've got to figure out how to deal with those feelings that are going to come up because they will, right? Just because you want your loved one to change, they're not going to change because you want them to, right? So you have to find ways to relate to your own emotional discomfort that comes up in the helping process. How do I, how do I tend to myself when I'm angry? How do I express my angry feelings? How do I tend to myself when I'm brokenhearted, when I'm terrified? Like sometimes I'm going to want to stay connected and keep using some skill that I'm trying to use to help my loved ones. Sometimes I may have to be able to say to myself, I'm hurting too much. I need to, I need to back up a little bit, take care of myself, nourish myself so I can go back in and try to have another conversation and use a different skill and see if it goes better because I want to keep having conversations with my loved one. I don't want so, to cut them off. Right, and that makes that makes total sense. I, I was concerned that people might be. In fact, I think I did this when I read it the first time. Willingness is a new way to relate to pain. Was there a limit to yes. the amount of pain I should be willing to to deal with? Should I just be a doormat? And of course, that's not you know what you're saying. Not at all. But what what I do hear you saying is that it's values based. In other words, what are the what are the values that are vital to my own? thriving. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to endure pain up until the point where I'm violating my own values. Is mm-hmm. that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. And really, really assessing those and staying true to those, you know, and that's why kindness is built into this model, right? Because oftentimes when we're in pain, so when we're scared, an understandable way to feel in control of fear is to get angry, right? Because anger makes us feel in control. like it just does. It's not effective, but it makes us feel that way. So you'll often see people do and say things out of anger when what they're actually feeling is fear, you know, and fear is a different place to operate within. And you can, you can tend to your fear, right? You can take care of yourself and you can just accept. Yeah. I'm frightened right now. My loved one's doing something that's really frightening, scary. I can try to control them, which I know that backfires on me because I've tried to do it 10 times, right? So I know that strategy doesn't work. I can yell at them. That doesn't work. (laughs) So most of the time, family members are like, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff I've tried that doesn't work so well. Willingness allows you to kind of slow down and be like, okay, I've got some other strategies to learn. I need to join in the learning process here. What can I learn so that I can approach this problem in a different way? And that's not being a doormat. There's really like, there's a lot of skills and invitation to change that are letting natural consequences play a role, right? So part of the enabling thing is that family members kind of shave off some of the rough edges of the natural outcomes of their loved one's behavior, right? They just want to protect them from it because we don't want our loved ones to get hurt. To really intentionally 
So there's some things that you can't let happen. Like if your loved one gets off the train and is going to drive home drunk, well, that's not good for your loved one and not good for your community, right? So that might be a natural consequence that you don't want to let play out because that somebody could really get hurt. Cleaning up after them when they've made a mess, you know, they've vomited on the floor, they've done something that is actually their mess. If you go clean that up, they never have to feel that consequence, right? So that's one of the really helping people intentionally choose, I got to let the world be their teacher. The world can be a powerful teacher if I let it, but I need to be judicious in that space, you know, and that requires the loved one to slow down, like really slow down and understand their own emotional responses and learn different strategies to deal with their emotional responses. So there's a lot of work in the invitation to change, which I think is awesome, by the way. I mean, I think like we can all, we can all get better at what we do, right? We can all get better with interacting with the people that we care about and the yeah, invitation I, I, to change is just absolutely. full of those skills. <laughs> Listening to you and, and again, having read both books, you know, the, the workbook, the subtitle is evidence-based skills to help a loved one make positive change. But really it sounds like the, 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 the loved one is not just the person with the addiction. The loved one is the other person. Yes. You, know, you said that that for every addict, there's one to four people who are impacted. The the people who are who also have to make a positive change are those one to four people who are impacted. Yes. So the ever the people go, wait a minute, this is not my problem. Oh. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't want to change. Right. Happens all the time. That's why they want to jump into the helping with action section, right? They just want to go into what do I do? You know. That, and we really try to slow them down. Of like, you actually need to look at yourself and how you're doing and how you communicate, how you deal with your own emotions, how you take care of yourself. And the biggest piece of it really, because there's a lot of, you know, self-help, self-care kind of stuff out there. I think there's a big difference between self-care and self-compassion. Like to really take a compassionate approach to your to yourself as a human who cares about somebody who's struggling, that's hard. You've got stuff to learn because nobody, one of the things I say to the families I work with, I'm like, I went to school for this. I've got lots of training. I get supervision. I get lots of support. You didn't go to school for this and you're having to do what I do all day long, right? (laughs) You're living with it. So you're not going to be good at this. You're not, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I screw up all the time, you know? So creating this model where, we're allowed to be human. We're allowed to have our failings. We're allowed to have, try something and have it go badly and really with compassion, go back and be like, okay, I need to practice again. I need to try it again. You know, there's so much hardness and there's harshness when it comes to addiction problems. And it's not good for the family members and it's not good for the person with the problem. It's just not. And it, and it has no place in this invitation to change model. No. So that, unfortunately, we are out of time, but that's a pretty good place to stop. Mm. Our guest today, Carrie Wilkins, is the co-author of Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change, and the co-author of a recently published book, Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, Evidence-Based Skills to Help a Loved One Make Positive Change. You can learn more about her work at motivationingchange.com, and you can read a review of Beyond Addiction Workbook in the Books We Love column in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Gary Wilkins, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you for having me. 
Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano. If you enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you did, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health Magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify.